Welcome to a, another episode of The Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Dr. Jabor. So, Serge A. Jabor, MD, FACP, FACE, is a professor of medicine and the director of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolic Diseases at Jefferson. He's also the director of the Jefferson Diabetes Center. Dr. Jabor completed his training in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolic diseases at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And Dr. Jabor has been recognized with many honors, and he's the holder of many teaching awards. Dr. Jabor was named the top doc in Philadelphia area every year since 2011 by Philadelphia Magazine, and one of the best endocrinologists in the nation by Castle Conley every year since 2012. Dr. Jabor is a member of numerous professional organizations, including the Endocrine Society, American Diabetes Association, and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. Dr. Jabor has published many articles and chapters on diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and various endocrine topics. He serves on the editorial board of many journals, and he just finished in September 2021 his five-year tenure as the chair of the Endocrine Board Review Committee for the Endocrine Society. Dr. Jabor's main research interest is in the field of diabetes. He's involved in many clinical research trials related to new diabetes drugs. He also gives many lectures all over the world on different endocrine topics, mainly diabetes, either in the setting of grand rounds, symposia, or other CME presentations. I am truly honored to have such an awe-inspiring and world-class endocrinologist with me today. Welcome, Dr. Jabor, and let's see how many people we can convince to do endocrinology. Thank you, Zach, for this very nice introduction. I'm really happy to be here today. I'm so happy to have you. So the way we start is we'll go over some t statistics, and then I'll go into the first question. So statistics around endocrinology. So the burnout rate is 33% compared to the 36% average of all physicians across America in 2023. The happiness rate is tied with the general average at 58% and 58%. And this comes from the Medscape report of 2023. The salary. So the average salary of a physician overall in America is 339000 and the median academic medicine salary for an associate professor is 234000 according to the AAMC. The hours. The average physician works 51 hours a week, and the average endocrinologist, according to the AAMC, works 48 hours a week. As for training, just to do the kind of basic endocrinology fellowship, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's two years after IM residency. Yes, any of those statistics stand out to you? Any corrections or anything like that? No, they are correct, but they vary, of course, by institution. Of course. So in my institution, for example, the happiness rate is much higher. Yeah. <laughs> because we try to do things which can make our faculty's life yeah. better and more flexible. And we can more talk about it later, Definitely. how we can improve wellness yeah. and retain faculty so yeah. they don't move and go somewhere else. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Yeah. So you're saying just come work at Jefferson, basically. Yes, exactly. Okay, perfect. So let's start out with... What is endocrinology? So that's a great question. Can I try to answer it in a general Any way term you want, yeah. And then be more specific. Yeah. So it's the field of medicine which studies all the glands which secrete hormones that have vital uh, role or can affect your organs in many ways. To be more specific, we deal with patients who have pituitary problems. Pituitary is a small gland below the brain which controls, in fact, all the glands in your body. And we see people who have tumors on that gland, which can affect the function of it. Uh, we see patients with thyroid disease, either overactive, underactive thyroid, people with thyroid nodules, thyroid cancer. We see patients with 
diabetes mellitus, obviously, which is, you know, extremely common in this country. So patients who have type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, we can talk about it maybe a little bit later. We see patients with bone disease, osteopenia, osteoporosis, uh, blood calcium problem from the parathyroid glands, so hypercalcemia, hypocalcemia. We see patients who have weight issues. You know, we try to make people lose weight, eat healthier. We deal with high cholesterol uh, problems, and we deal with also genital problems. We see patients who have hypogonadism, guys who have low testosterone, women who have irregular periods, trying to find out if that's the endocrine system causing it. So we see a wide array of medical problems, but they all affect the glands which secrete hormones. Wow, wow. And you specially specialize in diabetes or you do kind of, you practice with patients across the gamut? Yeah, so I see general endocrinology. I see yeah. all, kinds of, all kinds of patients. Yeah. But my main interest when it comes to research is diabetes. So yeah. I love to work on a new drugs, new technology, yeah. which can make our diabetics life much better. Yeah. Uh, but I see all kinds of endocrine problems. I see. From I see. A to Z. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And we're definitely going to get into that. But before we get into that, I want to start at the beginning of Dr. Jabor's medical career. How did you become interested in endocrinology and how did you decide on this career? Yeah, that's a great question. So it goes back to when I was five years old. Of course, I could not remember this myself, yeah. <laughs> but my parents always told me when I was five, for yeah. some weird reason, I told them, I want to be a doctor. Yeah. So my Christmas gift that year was a doctor's box, which had a stethoscope and otoscope and all the doctor needs to examine patients. Wow. And it seems my mom tells me I used to have fun, you know, putting that stethoscope. She has no idea how I learned how to even wear it. At the time, you know, I was five. There was no internet. Yep. Nothing except watching TV, obviously. Yep. And I used to examine my mom, my dad. You what know, were you doing with the yeah. stethoscope? So you? I had no idea what I was doing at that time. But that's when they discovered, right, this kid loves to be a doctor. Yeah. Maybe it will happen, maybe not. Yeah. And that persisted through my schooling. So I never changed my mind, my opinion, always wanted to be a doctor. So I worked hard in school to always get these good grades, good scores. I knew that's going to affect where I might end up in the future. And then I get into med school that was back in Lebanon where I was born. So I was in a French medical school because French is our major language. Uh How many languages do you speak? I speak three languages. languages. Arabic is my native language and French is my major language. So it's the major language in Lebanon in schools, universities. And English is our third language. Like I studied English Uh in high school, like one hour a week. Now it's different. Now English is way more important. So you know, kids study it yeah. when they are really young. I see. But in my first year in med school, when I studied that course talking about the hormones and the glands and the feedback mechanism, I was fascinated by it. And I told, you know, my colleagues in school at that time, I was in first year med school, I'm going to do endocrine. That's my passion. I love it. And same thing, I did not change my mind. So through med school, and not sure if you know, the way med school in Lebanon is with the system is different. Okay. So from high school, you enter med school directly. Mm-hmm. So there's no college. So you do seven years of med school after high school. So first year, I was fascinated by endocrine. 
by the hormones, the glands, by diabetes. And that stayed with me through all med school. And I knew at that time was going to do endocrine. Yeah. So that did not change. Then, of course, after I finished med school, I came to the States. Yeah. Um, and I did my internal medicine training. And same thing, did not change my mind, was going to do endocrine. And then, then I did endocrine, you know, came to Jefferson for my fellowship. And that's been my passion since. I mean, I wow. love what they do. I love endocrine. Yeah. Every time I see patients, I put my passion in it to try to help them. Yeah. And that's what drives my happiness, yeah. right? I mean, so I always say to people, whatever you decide to do, don't do it for the money or for any other reason. Yeah. Do it because you love it. Because your job is basically most of your day, sometimes your weekend also, you need to do something you love and you enjoy doing. So from the minute you wake up, you need to be happy going to work. Wow, wow. And was it a slow burn or was it an epiphany moment when you decided, I want to be an endocrinologist? Was it you saw the first feedback loop diagram of, you know, I don't know, insulin and yes. glucose and you're like, this is it, I'm going to be an endocrinologist or was it over a year or two years? No, it was super quick. I remember <laughs> quick. the professor at that time started that course, which was a two-week course uh -huh. on endocrine physiology in that year, learn more about the hormones, not even about diseases yet. Mm. And the minute I saw all these figures and, you know, all these feedbacks on hormones and how they interact, yeah. you know, all together, I was just fascinated. I knew that was what I wanted to do. Don't ask me why. I mean, something in me, you know, changed and yeah. I just love it. And I remember my friends in school were like, Serge, you still have six more years to go. Because yeah. the med school is seven years. You're going to change your mind a million times. Exactly. And they changed their mind a zillion times. Yeah. They went from different specialty to another. Yeah. And I never yeah. changed my mind. And yeah. I always be, always been fascinated by it. And in fact, tell you a funny story. So when I started internal medicine, I was intern. And typically interns are supposed to read internal medicine. And I remember at that time, probably still, there's that famous Harrison textbook, which every one doing internal medicine would read. It has everything about internal medicine. I had read it in med school already. So in my intern years, I was reading endocrine. I, I would open these textbooks, only fellows, you know, would read. So I knew about endocrine more than anyone else. They would come and ask me, you know, endocrine. That was my passion yeah. since first year med school. Wow. And wow. happened like this. That's amazing. And it stuck all the way through, all the way through yes. residency, fellowship, and of course, yes. even now. Yes, exactly. Because I love what I do. That's yeah. my passion. So, yes, I do love to see patients, and that's my passion too. I love to make people feel better yeah. and do better. Uh, I love research because I think research gets us to better patient care. Yeah. It's because of research we come up with new drugs and also new technology. I love teaching. You know, we get med students, interns, residents. We have fellows with us. Yeah. So I love the teaching part. I love to build these young physicians into skilled, knowledgeable physicians yeah. who can help patients in the future. Yeah. And I love also the admin side of it because I deal with, you know, admin stuff and budget. Again, because remember, even though we love to see patients and do research, you need to have the structure to be able to do it, yeah. right? You need to make sure that you get, you know, uh, financing to be able to do the studies, mm -hmm. need to get some grants. 
mean, without this, you cannot build any trials no. and do and do any research. Because you're the director at this point, right? Yeah. You've got a you've got a lot of a lot of people under you, a lot of responsibility, not only to your patients but also to the employees, right, right. and your colleagues, right. right? Exactly. I have to make sure that my division or department is functioning properly. Yeah. That everyone is happy. We have the right to staffing. Yeah. Right to check in patients, to room patients, to call patients, to get their messages. I mean, you can't just do it on your own. Yeah. And have to make sure that my colleagues are happy at work. Yeah. I mean, we are a nice, happy, big family, right? Because again, we work together yeah. from early morning to evening. Exactly. So I have to make sure it's a nice, happy family. And again, have to make sure that also I listen to my colleagues and make sure that when they come to work, they don't forget their families. Everyone has you know, family outside work. I don't want work to overwhelm right, my colleagues and that is going to impact on their life and family. So we try to work in a way there's a balance and that's going to retain people and make them happy and make the structure work really well. Can you talk a little bit more about keeping everyone happy? Because I think it's a huge it's a huge difficulty for a lot of especially larger healthcare organizations. And especially now you're seeing uh, residents unionizing and all these right. kind of things. How do you keep your team happy and motivated, I guess? Yeah, I'll tell you. So there are a few things I learned doing over time. Is first to listen to the needs yeah. of every person. I'll give you one, one quick example. I have a colleague who's been my colleague for quite some time. She has three kids. She has sick parents. So I work with her to come up with a flexible schedule. Like you don't need as a physician to start seeing patients at eight in the morning and finish at five, right? Even though the higher up people in that big organization might tell you it's best to have that strict schedule. But I work with her to have flexible schedules. She would come in on certain days at nine or 10 because of her kids. Mm -hmm. She might have to leave sometimes early, but you know what? She's doing her job. She's seeing patients. She's teaching. So why not give her that flexible schedule? So that made her extremely happy. So that's why I'll never lose her mm -hmm. to another place. Yeah. But if you mandate certain things which can impact someone's life and family, they will leave because they will be unhappy. We've had the staff who have sometimes issues at home, either daycare issues, they have you know, kids at home or they have sick parents and they can't always make it to the office. So we learned how to assign them jobs. They can do it remotely, right? So with the electronic medical records we've had now for a long time, they can access those records from home. They can check patient messages. They can do refills on their medications. So they can do a lot of things, yeah. not just being in the office. So when you listen to your staff and colleagues and see what their needs are, right, you can make them happen. There's yeah. nothing really impossible. Plus... It's nice as a group also to share some social moments together. So we try sometimes to go out for a little dinner, organize something. I think it's nice to see each other outside work. Mm -hmm. So that can create that happiness. People feel like, well, it's not just going to work. It's also my family, my mm -hmm. second family. Yeah. So that helps retain people and helps the morale and make people happier at work. Yeah, I would love to have you as a boss. This sounds, this sounds fantastic. So let's delve into your life a little bit more. 
What is your day-to-day? And I know it varies immensely from week to week, but could you take me maybe through an average week? When you wake up, what office you go to, if you're seeing patients or research? Right. So so typically I see patients three and a half days a week. Got it. Because my my time is split between patients, research, and also admin work. But when I see patients for those three and a half days, I always have with me either a fellow resident students who do teaching nonstop, and then I have time for research to run all the trials, all the studies. We have mostly on new drugs for diabetes. And I have little time for, you know, budget and admin uh, stuff. And I also take time sometimes away from the office to go lecture. So I travel all over the world to lecture on diabetes, on all the new drugs I studied, if I can research. But my day-to-day, I wake up five in the morning, I'm really early bird. So I wake up at five in the morning and, you know, I take a little time first to read the news, see what's going on outside medicine. And then I make myself a little, you know, I mean, you know, I make coffee and, you know, eat something, shower, then get to work. I'm at work by like 6.30 or so. I love to get to work early in the morning before most people because it's a quiet time. I can finish a lot of things. So I look at all my patient messages, respond to them. I can read all the newest stuff. You know, I read all the journals. I look up online, anything new going on in endocrine. I can write my manuscripts. You know, we write all the time, uh, you know, articles on different topics in endocrine. So I can work. I can do a lot of things in the morning before I start my first patient at eight. And then I see patients on the days I see patients. You know, my first patient is eight. I finish by five, typically. I get the lunch break maybe 45 minutes or so, where I can catch up on some emails. And eat something, hopefully. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Always make sure I yes. eat something. And then when I finish, it's not like I'm done. So I think as you know, physicians, as you know, it's not really you know, eight to five. So although I finish seeing patients, I may still have messages to go through. I might have to sign off on different papers. Um, maybe I have a meeting and then I go home. And I always give time for the gym. I think so that's my passion. Also outside work, I think it's very important to keep that wellness and a balance in your life. I mean, you can't work from early morning to midnight. That's going to affect me at the end, physically and mentally. And then I won't be able to help my patients. I need to feel good and be in my best state to be able to be good for my patients. So, So I go to the gym, I try to go five, six times a week. I love the gym. And typically I do weights. I do some cardio also. And, you know, I try to set time, maybe not during the week as it's really tough, but on weekends to see my friends, go to the movies. Uh, In the summer, go to the beach. Um, You know, I watch, you know, TV and Netflix, same as everyone, right? So, you know, I try to get a balance in my life. But again, my work never ends. Yeah. So many times in the evening at some point in between the gym, eating something or my Netflix, I might log in and then check again, you know, patient messages, call patients, take care of some notes or charts. So our work physicians really never ends. It's not set in stone between certain times of yeah. the day. But again, I try to keep a balance in between right? And make sure that I'm happy physically and mentally uh, because otherwise it's going to affect your work. Yeah, yeah. And you've accomplished a lot. 
a lot. I mean, I don't even, we're not even going to touch the surface and all the questions I have. But before we delve into more of the science diabetes things, I want to talk a little bit more about the career because you obviously accomplished a good position. You're a director of a program and all these kind of things. Can you give any advice for people that are interested in clinical medicine but are interested in advancing through the ranks in clinical medicine? Because you're the director of endocrinology, right, at Jefferson. That's amazing. That's huge. Did you strategize at all? Was it just kind of lucky? Was it, how did you get here? No, I'll tell you. So uh, I did not really plan on yeah. being director. It just happened naturally over time. And again, I don't think it's one single aspect of my career which made me advance to this. I think it's combination of different things. And that's the advice I would give to people. So first is uh, work hard. Yeah. I mean, hard work is really key be dedicated to your job. And if you love your job, that's not going to be an issue, right? So if you love what you do, then everything comes naturally. Because I love my job. I don't mind working hard. I don't mind seeing patients. I don't mind answering messages. I don't mind making slides for a lecture. I don't mind teaching because I love what I do. Mm. So that comes really naturally. But hard work is really key because when people see you work hard and you're dedicated to your job, you're motivated, and you're not only seeing patients, but you're teaching students and residents and fellows, and you're doing a great job at it because the feedback is really good, then people will advance you. So naturally, you will end up getting promoted. Your title will be higher and higher, and people will offer you to be in those positions. But I think also it's important to be nice to people and uh, be modest, not be arrogant, not talk to people, you know, in a mean or nasty way. And I, again, I won't be too specific, but, you know, I have seen sometimes some colleagues, not in my department, but in other departments who would talk down to students or even peers or colleagues and they have arrogance to them and they are not liked by other people in that whole organization. So then their promotion probably going to be blocked. I mean, not that they don't deserve it, but they will not get to a position that they would lead people. Yeah, They may be promoted because they deserve it, yeah. maybe professor title, but they will not be placed as director leading exactly. staff and people because they don't know how to interact with other people. So I think the key besides hard work, dedication, and loving what you do is to know how to interact with people, be nice to people, be decent. Just be decent to a human being. Yeah. And that makes a huge difference. It's so simple, but it, it makes so much sense to me. Now I'm going to ask you a fun question. If I gave you $100 million today, completely tax-free... 100 million. 100 million. One zero 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 zero. If I gave you all that money, tax-free, no taxes, anything on that... And I give you four options. Option number one is you continue practicing full-time doing exactly what you're doing. Option number two is you work part-time so you can drop some commitments, anything you like. You can work part-time. Option number three is you change careers and become a professional bodybuilder, professional weightlifter, anything you want. It's a joke, really. Or option number four, you quit everything entirely and you go live in a beach in, I don't some know, small island or somewhere. something like this. Yeah. Which option would you choose? Option one for option sure. Option one. Yeah, I would never change anything. Never and in change fact, anything. it's funny. 
Sometimes, you know, when I sit with my friends, you know, we joke. Yeah. It's like, what if we win the lottery? Yeah. Right? Or make a million. Now it's a huge prize. Yeah. What would you do? I'm like, I'm happy the way I am. I don't yeah. want to change anything. Huh. I love my job. I don't want to be traveling all the time or in some small island somewhere. I don't want to work part-time yeah. because then I won't be able to do all the stuff I do in two or three days a week. I love to see patients. I have to do research. I love to teach. I love to travel to conferences. So I love all I do. I'm not going to change anything. I don't need to have my private plane. I don't need to have five houses. I don't need to have a boat. I don't need to have all that stuff. So to me, money is relative. I think, you know, we just need right enough money to have a decent life, to have what you want in life. And I have what I want. I don't need more. So if I had to win all this money, I mean, I tried to help probably, I mean, charity money, of course, people who need, you know, money because they don't have even money to live or maybe support their kids. But maybe if I had that money, I would probably build maybe a Jabour Diabetes Center, <laughs> right, affiliated with Jefferson, and then expand what we do within ah. Jefferson, right? I would hire more, you know, physicians, yeah. more diabetes educators, expand the research. I can invest more in research. Wow. So I would still work full time, but maybe that would be one way to expand what we do. Wow right beyond the grants we get yeah. from different sources to do research, that would be amazing money to have for research. Yeah, yeah. I think you're doing a great job of convincing everyone to do endocrinology, and I think we're just going to keep going into it. So we're going to start with, we'll start with the happy, and then we'll get to the less happy. What is the best thing about being an endocrinologist? The best thing is, I think, in my own opinion, is managing diabetes. Because as you may know, in this country, there are close to 30 million people who have diabetes. So it's a pandemic, in fact. Yeah. It's not only epidemic, yeah. it's a pandemic. It's all over the world. And the numbers are going up and up. So we expect yeah. these numbers to be much higher wow. in the next 10 years. Why? Because of, again, weight gain and you know obesity and the way we eat. Uh, so I love managing diabetes. I think I enjoy every day when I see someone coming to see me with uncontrolled diabetes and I make changes on their regimen. I, we talk about uh, diabetes education, dietary intervention. We talk about exercise. We use the newest technologies to help them achieve that goal. And when they come back and you see amazing results, I love it. Mm -hmm. Of course, I love to deal with all kinds of endocrine diseases, but diabetes is also a passion of mine. So that's what I love doing. I also, as I said before, I love all these complex interactions between hormones. So my fellows sometimes laugh, you know, when, you know, we see patients with certain rare endocrine disorders, right? I mean, you know, I get so excited and passionate about it. They'd be like, give us some of your passion. Yeah. You know, how do you get so excited? I'm like, because I love to teach you yeah. guys about it. So not only help the patient, and when you make a diagnosis, which is rare, right? So then the fellow's like, okay, just tell us more about it. And I love to teach. This is, yeah. you know, part of me. You know, I love to convey that knowledge yeah. I have to my fellows and students and yeah. residents. 
So that's what I love about it. That's amazing. Do you remember any of the rare, random, recent diseases that you've diagnosed or were teaching about to a resident or fellow? Yeah, so in fact, uh, last month, I see a patient refer to me uh, from two hours away. In fact, she, you know, drove from two hours away and she was seen by few other specialists. They couldn't figure out what she really had. And she had different conditions, which people didn't know how to maybe link together or if they were even linked together. So she was born with uh, a condition called achalasia, which is a narrowing of the esophagus, which is the food pipe, mm-hmm. we call it. And then she had certain procedures to enlarge it so she's able to eat food without any issues. And then one thing her mother tells me, so the patient was 22 years old, that, which is weird, she said, she never cried. We never see her cry. We never see her tears. Even when we upset her, when she said about something, she just never cries, which may be a blessing, I guess, <laughs> but it was a weird you know, observation yeah. from the mother. And then when she became 17 years old, she started feeling really tired, lose weight without any obvious reason. And then on certain blood tests done by someone she saw locally, she had a low sodium. Her blood sugar was on the low side. They couldn't tie all this together. So someone said, maybe it's your hormones. Maybe it's the endocrine system, right? Whenever people don't know the answer, it's the endocrine system. (laughs) These are your hormones. So she saw someone locally. They couldn't find anything. They checked her thyroid, pituitary. And then someone else said, maybe it's the adrenals. Maybe you have adrenal insufficiency. So they run some blood tests on her, and they were confused how to interpret these numbers. So her cortisol was on the low side. Her ACTH, which is a pituitary hormone, was on the high side. But they couldn't fit all this together. So when she came to see me, the fellow goes to see her first with the med student, and then they come back, present the case to me, and I'm listening to them, and they see me getting excited. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> that's a rare condition I had never seen before. It's so rare. You read about it. So how can you tie together someone with, with adrenal insufficiency with achalasia and absence of tears? And that's a syndrome called Algrove, people call it triple A syndrome, believe it or not, AAA. Not this one. Right, so it's adrenal insufficiency and achalasia and alecremia. So that's when people lack the lacrimal glands. Some people are born, they don't have any lacrimal glands. They don't cry, they they have no tears. Yeah. Right, so it's a syndrome described by Algrove long time ago, only dozen of cases in the whole world. And How did you remember that? Well, because I read the law, yeah. and that's something I read in that you know textbook yeah. I mentioned before. Yeah. And again, you, like you read it from time to time, but you never see it yeah. because it's so rare. And you know, when they were like telling me, I'm like, I can't believe I'm seeing the first case of that rare syndrome, which I always wanted to see because you know I love endocrine and wow. I would love to see every yeah. single condition you know, in my whole career. So I got so excited. There's a gene testing we can do Uh to really prove it. 
And again, the treatment is to give her I mean, steroids to replace yeah. what the adrenals are not really making. But it was really great, you know, moment. Did where, you run into the room excited? I know what it is. Yeah, I was like jumping around, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, you know, like the fellow always were like, give us some of your passion. I don't know why you get so excited. I'm like, well, don't you see? That's yeah. a rare condition. We have someone with that condition here in the office. Yeah. And you're making the diagnosis. So the mom almost like, you know, hugged me at the yeah. end. You know, so they finally know what it is, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's you know one part I love, yeah. right? When you make those diagnoses, you know, and you know people, you know, feel grateful. I mean, they thank yeah, you for it, and you make them feel better. Yeah, also. Yeah, and you're so passionate about this. Where does the passion for diabetes come from? Is it just because it, you see it so much and you see how it's affecting so many people? Is it you love the flow diagrams with diabetes and stuff like that? Or where, where does the specific passion for diabetes come from? Yeah, so one, one reason is because I was so fascinated, you know, not only by the whole endocrine system, yeah. but by the feedback, the hormones. And one of my passion I found in my first year med school when they talked about insulin and the relationship between insulin, glucose, and so on. But I think the second reason was when I was a kid and I grew up in my village, small village in the outskirts, in fact, of the major city, Beirut in Lebanon, uh, a neighbor of us had type 1 diabetes. And, you know, I used to see her as a kid injecting insulin, using syringes. I would see her draw it in the syringe from the vial. And then I saw her over time, how her condition got worse. She ended up on dialysis. At some point, she could barely see. So I saw her getting all the complications over time. And, you know, and I was saying to myself at that time, why can't someone help her? Why can't someone do something, mm -hmm. right, to make her feel better, to stop these complications from happening? And of course, I did not understand much about it at that time until med school when I learned about it. And of course, things have changed in the way we treat like either type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So at the time, she was type 1. We didn't have the same types of insulin we have now. We didn't have the same technology we have now. So, you know, I think that made my interest in diabetes even more because I saw someone in front of me get worse over time, get all the complications. I think something in me said, I wish I could do something myself in yeah. the future so people don't end up like her yeah. with wow. all these complications. Wow. That's noble. It's very noble, and it's really interesting. So I would be remiss, and now we're to the part of the interview which I'm really excited about. We're going to talk about diabetes. So I want to start with something that I was trying to remember from medical school around type 2 diabetes. So if someone has genetic risk factors for type 2 diabetes, there's some environmental component that contributes to the possible development of type 2 diabetes, right? What can someone do or what are some things we should know about about developing type 2 diabetes? Is it just right. if you eat a lot of food, you get type 2 diabetes right. or, or how does it happen? That's a great question. How yeah. much time do we have? Do we have an hour? We have 9 million hours. <laughs> no, we, we, we're about 45 minutes in, so, so we're doing okay. So, so let me try to explain it clearly. Yeah. First, if you look at the genetics of type 2 diabetes, yes. it's a polygenic disease. It's not one single gene. Yeah. So to make it clear, if you look at type 1 diabetes, which again, for people to understand, type 1 is when you have autoimmune destruction of the cells which make insulin in the pancreas. For type 1, we know the genes exactly. There are specific genes implicated in type 1. 
for type 2, it's not one single gene. There are many genes altogether. It's called polygenic disease. But what we know, to give you some numbers which are really interesting, 40% of people who have type 2 diabetes have at least one family member who has also type 2. And if someone has type 2 in the family, the risk for a first-degree family member to have type 2 is 5 to 10 times higher than someone else who has no family members. So genetics are there, but they are not enough to induce type 2 diabetes in 90% of the time. 90%? Yes, in 10%, the genes will make you have type 2, no matter what you do. But then in 90%, genes are not enough. You need to add factors from the environment to induce type 2. So what are these? One is weight gain. So when people gain weight, not muscle weight, but again, I would say non-healthy weight. So when the body mass index goes above 25, right? So that can induce diabetes. Why? Because weight gain will induce insulin resistance. So the insulin doesn't work anymore at the cell level. So you're making insulin, but it's not really working. So when you eat carbohydrates, you eat the bread, let's say, the bread gonna convert into glucose in the blood, but then you need insulin to enter that glucose in the cell. So if the cell is resistant to insulin, then the glucose stays in the blood, blood sugar goes up, right? So then there's insulin resistance, and because the insulin is trying to fight that barrier at the cell level, the pancreas end up getting exhausted at some point. Then it stops secreting the same amount of insulin. So then you end up with what we call beta cell dysfunction. So there's lack of normal insulin secretion, and that contributes to why the blood sugar goes up over time. Mm. So weight gain. Now, I can tell you one thing, because you mentioned it. So it doesn't matter what you eat and how to eat. So as long as you don't gain weight to become overweight, because you might eat junk food all the time, but then you exercise a lot. You're burning calories. Your body mass index stays the same. You will not become diabetic, right? So, but if you... Like, no matter what you eat, if your body mass index goes up, and that's not, again, a muscle gain, because I've seen people who say, when I eat the proteins all the time, and I still gain weight, I'm not sure why. Well, proteins in excess will convert into fat and sugar, right? So if you're not working out at the gym and doing weights and lifting weights, if you're eating lots of protein, what the muscles are not using the excess amino acids from the proteins will convert into sugar and fat. So that's why it doesn't quite matter what you eat. Obviously, I'm not going to say to people, eat anything you want, because unhealthy eating and junk food will end up making most people gain weight. Unless you're lucky, you're born with a fast metabolism, you're burning food really quickly, and you're very active. Like I know someone who is slim, and who tries to even gain weight by eating junk food and cannot gain weight. He's lucky, has good genes, has a fast metabolism, right? So it's more the weight gain, which can induce diabetes. Lack of exercise, because when you're not active, you're sitting around all the time, then there's also insulin resistance. So when you're more active, you exercise, then the insulin will work better at the cell level to enter that sugar coming from food you eat, 
then you don't become diabetic. Now, age is a factor also because as we get older, we become more insulin resistant. And there's nothing we can do about this, obviously. But you can do something to prevent diabetes. And there are a few studies like on this. One of them, we've done it at Jefferson. We are one of 29 centers nationwide running a study since 1996 called Diabetes Prevention Program. And we enrolled in the study patients who have borderline diabetes, pre-diabetes. And we wanted to see if lifestyle modification can prevent diabetes from happening. So the goal was to teach people how to eat healthier, lose weight, not too much weight, five to 7% of their weight, and be more active, three hours a week of exercise, at least a brisk walking. And we showed in the study, if people lose five to 7% of their weight, if they are more active, you can lower the risk of diabetes by 60%. Wow. But the key is to maintain this over time. As you know, people may eat healthier, be more active, but at some point, and I do get it, right? Life changes, stress in life, moving, new job, you know, all this can make people go back to their previous habits before. But basically to answer the question is lifestyle modification can prevent diabetes in those people mm -hmm. at risk. Got it. And for type 1 diabetes, it's solely determined by genetics, correct? Yeah. So for type 1, you have genetics, yeah. obviously, and we know the genes. Yeah. But genetics are not the only reason they get type 1. So what happens is you're born with those genes. Yeah. But then you need some insult to happen to make that immune system go crazy and attack your cells in the pancreas. Most of the time, the insult is a viral infection. And we know now from many studies, it's Coxsackie infection. Really? So that's a virus which can attack anyone. You get like flu-like symptoms and it goes away. But the virus ends up staying in the pancreas and then the immune system tries to get rid of it. How? By attacking the pancreas. And that leads to destruction of the cells making insulin and then type 1 diabetes happens. Now, we also know from also many other studies that it's not only infection, it's any stressful event. So that could be physical or psychological. When people go through major surgery, procedure, or psychological stress, sometimes divorce, car accident, something happens in your life, and within six months or a year, you become type 1 diabetic. So genes, again, are important in type 1. We know exactly where the genes are. Yeah. We can do testing for it in research. There's no commercial way to do it yet. But you need that insult to happen to have that type 1 occur. And we knew that really well from twin studies. You have identical twins. They share the same genes. One of them ends up with type 1. One of them does not or one of them might have type 1 20 years later. So that's why genes are important, but you still need that insult, which happens, which can start that immune process, which leads to type 1 diabetes. So if someone has the genetic predisposition for type 1 diabetes, will they always get it before the end of their life? That's a great question. Not always. So it depends on the antibodies they have. So that's a great question, which opens, again, another maybe one-hour lecture yes, for yes. me. <laughs> but let's say we do gene testing yeah. right, on someone yeah. at age one, and we discover they have the genes. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will have type 1 at some point. 
because it depends on the insult they will get. But then how to monitor, right, before they become diabetic. There's a blood test you can do to check for the antibodies, which are markers of what the immune system is doing. And if you see at some point that these antibodies are high, that means the insult already happened, mm. the antibodies are there, and it's a matter of time before they become diabetic. So then if the antibodies are high, the risk is 100% over a lifetime. So it's a matter of time before they do have diabetes. Luckily, and I won't mention names of certain medications, but there's a medication now available. It came out just recently. We can give that medication to people at risk of having type 1. So they have the antibodies. We know the risk is 100% over a lifetime. You can give them that medication. It's IV infusion mm. for 14 days. So it's daily for 14 days. You, you do it only once. And that can prevent and delay the onset of type 1 diabetes. So that just happened recently. So, and now we offer it, in fact, to people who have type 1 and family members at risk. Yeah. Remember, who are the people really at risk of having type 1? When I see a patient who has type 1, it's their kids, their brother, their sister. So now we tell them, make sure they are screened for these antibodies. Yes. If they are high, let us know. We can offer that infusion which can delay the onset of type 1 diabetes. That's exciting and amazing. And do you happen to know how it works? Is it an, a drug that targets these antibodies? Is it just exactly. lots of steroids? No. You got it. So okay. it's a drug which is not a steroid, okay. which will, in fact, target the immune system, right, to help delay and stop that destruction of the cells in the pancreas. And that's a great discovery, in fact, made by one smart Italian, in fact, scientist, uh, who saw in like small, like animal study first, the drug works on the immune system and targets those specific antibodies yeah. I mentioned. And then he started the human trials, which expanded right over time. And again, speaking before how, you know, grants and financial sources are important to do these, you know, to, I mean, to do all these studies. Yeah. He was able to gather money from, you know, donors who have a type 1 diabetic in their family. And through having all this money, he was able to raise enough money to yeah. do these studies, which showed that drug is really effective. Yeah. It works. FDA approved it. Wow. And now it's an option to give to people who are at risk of having type 1. Now, it's not given to people who already have type yeah. 1 who are on treatment. It's too late. Yeah. But we're going to have in the future, near future, Another drug, which is a pill, you can give to people recently diagnosed with type 1 to try to stop more destruction of the cells making insulin. So that pill might end up helping people be on less insulin, maybe stop insulin for some yeah. period called the honeymoon period. I see. So that would be available at some point in Got the near future. Because once all these beta cells are gone, there's no turning back, Exactly. Right? I see. Exactly. I see. Then the only treatment would be you know, to give insulin, yeah. either by injections or through insulin pump, yeah. or consider a transplant. I see. And our transplants, how long will a person 
last. Do you, you know what I mean? Sorry, I'm not wording the question correctly. But if someone gets a transplant, right. will the immune system attack again and destroy those beta cells again? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are two types of transplants. Yeah. But again, that works only for, for people with type 1. We're not talking one. type 2. Type 2, yeah. Right, because in, because in type 1, you lose all the cells making insulin. So you can have a whole pancreas transplant, get the pancreas from someone who just died. Yeah. And they match, of course, they do different tests to make sure, you know, they match. Uh, so when you when you transplant the new pancreas, it will start making insulin. Yeah. They will be insulin-free, which is really amazing. But they are given also what we call immunosuppressive agents, including steroids, yeah. to keep the immune system quiet. Exactly. Because otherwise, if you don't do this, the same antibody is going to do the same destruction again. The only downside is these drugs they give them, because they depress the immune system, they can lead to infections, mm. right? But many people tell you, you know what? I get an infection, I get treated for it. You know, I'm careful, I can wear a mask, I'm careful when I travel. But it's amazing if I don't take my insulin shots every day. Yeah. So people are diabetes-free. Now, even with this, again, depending on centers and the skills of a surgeon and experience of centers, the success is almost 70% over 10 years. So despite all this, even when you try to depress the immune system, remember, you cannot give high dose of these medications. So sometimes the immune system can still rebound and destroy the pancreas. Sometimes it's more of a technical issue. So the new pancreas may not get enough of blood supply. You know, it may just you know, die over time, and that can lead to, you know, type 1 diabetes yeah. again. Now, there's another type of transplant, which is more like fashionable now. It's called islet cell transplant. So instead of giving a whole pancreas, so in the lab, you take that pancreas and take the islet cells, where you have the beta cells in it, which make the insulin, and then infuse those through a catheter in the liver. So the islet cells would live in the liver, would secrete insulin, now, it's not a widely used procedure yet. There's not much experience with it, only a few centers nationwide. But again, you still have to take a drug to depress the immune system. So the same issue happens with the infections. Mm -hmm. And the success rate so far in the studies around, again, 60, 70% over 10 years. So these are options we have. But I can tell you, with the new technologies we have, with the new insulin pumps and continuous glucose sensors, most people with type 1 do extremely well. But when people still don't do well on the newest technology, we have the option to refer to have one of the two transplants done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's no reduction in, and you can, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is there a reduction in lifespan for people diagnosed with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, or are they expected to have a normal lifespan? So it depends how they were managed from beginning, okay. meaning in people with type 1, if they are on the newest technology, and if their A1C, which is the three-month average of all their blood sugar, it's a blood test we do called, uh, you know, which is called A1C hemoglobin A1C. So if that A1C is 7% or less, and they don't have a frequent low blood sugars, plus with the new technology, the continuous glucose sensor would warn patients before they even get a low blood sugar, so they can correct it before that happens. Those people should have 
normal life. If you look at older studies done back in the 80s or 90s, they show reduction in lifespan in people with type 1. But again, at that time, we did not have the newest technology, the newest pumps, the newest sensors. We did not even know in the 80s what the A1C goal should be. No one knew at the time how to manage people with type 1. So now we know exactly what to do. We have the means to do it. So people with type 1 can have a normal life. They can do anything they want. I have people who do all kinds of sports. You can live a normal life, no exception. You can travel, do anything you want. Now, with people with type 2, it's a little different because it's more of insidious disease. So it can happen slowly over time. People may not even have symptoms because A1C tend to go up slowly over time. People have no symptoms. Many times, by the time they come to us with a diagnosis of type 2, they've had either heart disease or stroke. Most people, because of weight issues, they have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, fatty liver, sleep apnea. So all these conditions can shorten the life of the patient. But if they follow what we tell them, if we get the A1C down, we have now ways using some of the newest medications to not help just the A1C come down, but help them lose weight, mm. which can improve their overall condition. They can sleep better. Uh, they would have better blood pressure, better cholesterol. There are newer also medications which can help your heart, your kidney. So with the means we have now, we can extend their life and make sure they have a normal life. Got it. But you also need the compliance of the patient and the motivation to make sure they follow our instructions yeah. and make it happen. This is so, and I have so many questions coming off of this one, but I want to start with something that's more popular right now. And May, if this is a silly question, let me know. But what do you think of this huge craze around Ozempic and GLP-1? What do you think of all okay. this? How much time do we have? <laughs> again, again, this is going to go. So <laughs> you're hitting all these points. Yeah. I could talk about them for a whole day. So <laughs> You're doing great job of cutting kind of them down. So there's a class of drugs yeah. called the GLP-1, GLP-1 receptor agonist. Yeah. Now, the way these drugs work, I won't get into too many specifics, not to bore people, but they help get the blood sugars down. That's why they are used to treat people who have type 2 diabetes. But also at the same time, they suppress appetite and make people eat less. Yeah. So weight loss is great. Yeah. And we have many of them. There's Bidurian, Trilicity, Ozempic, Wigovi, Munjaro. There's Victoza. They are all once a week, except Victoza, which is once a day. So once a week is much easier. They come all in a pen device. It's really easy to inject once a week. They are all approved to treat type 2 diabetes. But one of them, Wegovi, which is the same compound as Ozempic, is called semaglutide. So Wegovi is approved for weight loss, no matter what you have, diabetes or not. It doesn't really matter. But again, they work by suppressing appetite. Now, they work. They are really effective. Weight loss varies. In the studies, we've seen weight loss between 6 to 12% on average. Could be more, could be less. It depends if you combine it with lifestyle changes at the same time. But there are a few issues. Because people come to me, can I get Ozempic? Can of I course. get Wegovi? Like, of course you can, but listen to me first. So one issue is the side effects. 
So 20% of people will get the GI issues initially, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Luckily, these are transient. They go away after a few weeks, but then some people, they don't. Some people have horrible nausea. They throw up, they stop it. But there are some other complications, luckily rare, less than 1%, but they can induce acute pancreatitis. They can inflame the pancreas. Then patients can have severe abdominal pain. They throw up constantly. They end up in the hospital for days. They need IV fluids. Or they can induce gallstones. So there are complications from that. They are not, you know, 100% safe. Second is cost. They're not always approved by insurance companies. They could cost up to $1,000 a month. And the minute you stop them, if you did not make changes in your lifestyle, you're going to regain all the weight. Okay, they suppress appetite. You eat less. You stop them, going to eat more. Unless you made changes in your life. You join the gym. You go three, four times a week. You change the way you look at food. You see food. You deal with food then you can maintain the weight loss achieved by these medications. I've had success stopping those meds and some people after a year and they maintain their weight loss. But those are the people who've seen my dietitian. They learn how to eat healthier, even though they are on uh, those weekly shots. So yes, they work, but they have also issues. I think the great thing using them in people with type 2 diabetes is yes, getting the A1C down to normal, helping people lose weight, but they've also been shown in studies over and over that they can prevent heart attack and stroke. So that's why if you look at the guidelines set by the American Diabetes Association, they tell you in people who are at risk of having heart attack or stroke or people who already have heart attack and stroke, consider using one of these medications regardless of what the A1C is. So they have benefits when it comes to heart and brain also. So these are great medications, but I always make sure patients understand the safety also. Yeah. Right? You don't want to take a medication which can make you lose weight, but then be nauseous all the time. That's going to affect your quality of life. Yeah, yeah. And do you, anecdotally, are you getting more and more and more people coming to you asking for this over the past year or two? Yes, yeah. yes. I think what's driving this is the internet, yeah. social media. Yeah. And TV ads. Yeah. And people hear from their yeah. neighbor, their friend. Yeah. You know, I'm on that medication. Yeah. I'm losing weight. It's working. So people come to me asking to be on them. Yeah. But they don't always understand the safety of these drugs. Right? When they hear from me that they can induce gallstones, pancreatitis, they're like, nope, I don't want it. Some people don't care. They're like, you know what? I struggled yeah. with weight loss all my life. I've seen a dietitian. Yeah. I tried. Weight Watchers and different diet, nothing is working. Please help me. Then they accept yeah. all these side effects. And again, they do work. But then the big question is, what's going to happen when you stop them? Yeah. Because not all people are going to be on these injections their whole life. Although it's once a week, but still, you're still yeah. injecting. Some people say, you know what? I don't care. I'll take it my whole life. Yeah. If that's going to help me lose weight. Yeah. So that's why it's important at the same time you start these medications to have a dietitian on board, to explain to patients, you know, things about food in general. Yeah. I mean, I've had people with diabetes who think that fruits are proteins and they yeah. eat fruits nonstop and they wonder why their sugars are high. Yeah. So I think there's always a need for dietary teaching and yeah. also education. And I've seen, you know, physicians and nurses who come to see me 
for you know, type 2 diabetes, yeah. and they tell me, I don't have to see your dietitian. I know it all. But once I convince them and they meet with her, like, oh my gosh, I learned something. Like, I learn from them yeah. all the time, right? So these are the experts. They will teach you, you know, tips on how to eat healthier, yeah. what time to eat, when not to eat, what not to eat, what to snack on. Yeah. So all these are important things. Even when you don't have diabetes, it's important to know it. Obviously, we are human beings. Yeah. We have our weaknesses. Yeah. And I tell, you know, all my patients, don't feel bad if you cheat once a week. On Sunday, yeah. you have your pizza, your french fries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. But not every day. Yeah. Can you give us some of these tips, these food tips that you've learned and maybe taught to your patients and from the dietitian? Because even me, I find there's so much information about food, but very little, or at least in my experience, it's hard to find evidence-based information about food and diet and things like this, maybe beyond the DASH diet and the Mediterranean right. diet. What can you tell us about food and eating and yeah. nutrition? No, I'll tell you, give you a few things I learned from yes. my own dietitian and from the studies yeah. done more recently because what helped with all these studies is using the continuous glucose sensors. Even in people who don't have diabetes, you put them yeah. on a sensor and that checks your sugars constantly. So you know what's going on when you eat certain foods. So we yeah. learned from these studies what makes your blood sugar spike and what does not. Yeah. So for example, most people for, you know, morning meal, I mean, breakfast, I would say, because some people eat late in the morning, closer to lunch. So for breakfast, people may eat a bagel or a donut or cereal. Bagel, I think, is a horrible breakfast. One bagel is like 80 to 100 grams of carbs. That's way too much carbs. So if you put yourself on a sensor, eat a bagel, so your sugar go up really high. So all dietitians will tell you, do not eat a bagel, do not eat a donut. On a Sunday when I have it, yes, of course. Cereal, most of them, they have too much carbs. <clears throat> so your best ideal breakfast would be eggs. Egg whites are amazing. So it's only proteins. The yolk has great proteins and vitamins, but also fat. So we don't recommend more than one yolk a day, but egg whites, as many as you wish. Uh, Greek yogurt is great. Uh, be careful from juices. This is concentrated sugar. But again, you know, once a week, when I have your eight-ounce orange juice yeah. with a bagel, it's okay. But your breakfast ideally would be more like eggs or Greek yogurt. I know it could be boring, right, to eat this every day. And I know some people may, you know, deviate from this. And that's fine, Right, as long as overall, right, you're not eating a bagel every single day or drinking eight ounces of juice every single day. Dinner, most people eat late at night. There are studies now showing that if you eat after 6 p.m., that's gonna lead to more weight gain, more, more insulin resistance, which can lead to diabetes over time, more blood pressure issues. So ideally you would eat earlier dinner, I know it could be difficult with our schedule and life. You may not be home till maybe seven or eight in the evening. So that could be difficult to do. But at least if you eat at night, make sure you eat healthy. You know, I've had people who say, yeah, they eat lots of, you know, carbs at night, either bread or pasta. Like always make sure you have the protein with the carb. Because if you eat the purely carbohydrates, the sugar spikes really quickly. If you combine it with a protein, could be chicken, 
or turkey or fish, then the spike is much less. So that would help with the carbs you're eating. So ideally it would be a protein, vegetables, maybe little carbs, if you like mashed potato or bread, again, smaller portions. If you want to snack on something at night, make sure you don't do it nonstop because many of my patients, what they would say, you know what, I'm watching TV at night and I'm snacking from dinner all the way to bedtime. And they snack on, you know, different carbohydrates, could be ice cream or sweets or chocolate, you know, or cookies. So you can snack maybe once on like half a protein bar. You can snack on a few crackers and cheese, some peanut butter. Now, again, that doesn't have to happen every single day, but I would say most of the time. Yeah. Why is it bad for glucose to spike? Okay, so that's that's another lecture, I would say. So first, we're going nine lectures, right. twenty lectures in this. We're gonna podcast. be here all day, exactly. exactly, right? So when a glucose spikes, few things happen. One in people who have diabetes, it's been shown in studies that even when that A1C I talked about before is really good, if you see too many spikes after the meal, these could damage the blood vessels in your system. And just these spikes could lead to complications, either heart attack or stroke or kidney damage. A single spike. Not single spike, but spikes over some time. That's why when we look, now to be more specific and more scientific, when we place people on a continuous glucose sensor, right? We can see sugars nonstop every minute. We never look at one day or even a week. Because remember, one day may not reflect what you do every single day. So we look at two weeks average, at least two weeks, or a month if you want. And we look at something called time and range. So that's all the sugars in 14 days, which are between 70 to 180. And that includes any time. Could be before you eat, when you sleep, after you eat. The goal is more than 70%. So if you have too many spikes above 180, that number is going to be less than 70%. Mm. So studies have shown if your time and range is less than 70, even when the A1C is good, that's a risk factor for complications. So that's why if you have too many of these spikes, you eat a bagel every day, you're spiking 200, 220, 240, you snack at night nonstop, you're spiking for hours, the time and range could be 60%. That can make you prone to complications over time. So that's why spiking is not good. Plus when people spike, but that's not the same for every person, people complain when my sugar spikes, I just don't feel well. I feel like I cannot focus, I cannot concentrate. People, some people get mood swings mm -hmm. from it. So it affects just the way you feel and the way you act. Wow, wow. And we're going to do another lecture. I know, I'm already predicting it right now. The hemoglobin A1C, where does that number 7% come from? That's a great question. That's another lecture yeah, exactly. too. <laughs> so the A1C is all the sugars which bind to hemoglobin yeah. in the blood, right? So we know for a long time that normal A1C, so if you take someone who has no diabetes, nothing, your A1C Zach, should be less than 5.7%. That's normal A1C. If it's 5.7 to 6.4, that's pre-diabetes or borderline diabetes. 6.5 or higher, that defines diabetes. 
So why they picked for 6.5 to define diabetes? Because that's when the rates of complications, mostly eye disease, we call diabetic retinopathy, really start to go up. So they said, if that's the number linked to more complications, it should be lower to define the prediabetes. Now, why they picked prediabetes 5.7 to 6.4? Because they found people in that range are the ones who are going to progress to diabetes. If you're below 5.7, your rate of progressing is much, much lower. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to the rule. Now, where does the 7% come? So once you're diagnosed with diabetes, your A1C is 6.5 or higher, and I give you a treatment, could be dietary intervention, could be medications, could be injection, could be insulin. Studies have found that if you bring that A1C to 7% or less, let's say you start 9 or 10, and I bring it to 7 or less, the rates of complications are much lower. And that includes eye damage, kidney damage, nerve damage, and so on. And the first study which came out showing us this was in 1993. So before 1993, we had no idea what the A1C goal should be in someone who's diabetic. So at the time, you would treat a diabetic. I wasn't even a fellow at the time. But at the time, if you treat a diabetic, you don't know. Should the A1C be 8, 7, 6? No one knew. But in 1993, the first time ever, a study called BCCT trial in people with type 1 was published. And they showed that if you bring that A1C to 7% or less, those people with type 1 will have less complications. And then in 1997, another study called UKPDS in people with type 2 was also published. And they showed now in people with type 2, A1C 7 or less would lead to less complications. So that's how they came up with that 7%. Wow. But what they also showed in what we call scientifically subgroup analysis, yeah. that in certain people you may want that A1C to be even lower to prevent complications. So even less than 6.5. That's why it depends. I'm not going to get too specific. Yeah. But societies differ on what the goal is. You mentioned before in that very nice introduction that you know I'm part of different societies. So the ADA, which is American Diabetes Association, the goal is seven or less based on the data available. But the ACE, A-A-C-E, their goal is... 6.5 or less. So they are more aggressive because in some patients, you may want that A1C to be even lower to prevent more complications. Mm -hmm. So in real life, I choose the goal based on every patient because I know the whole patient, right? So what the risk factors are, what complications they have, their family history, and I set that goal based on every patient. Got it, got it. So you determine a hemoglobin A1C based on the whole patient. That's why it's right. so good to talk to your doctor about right, all these exactly. kind of things. Right, exactly, and not go on just Google yes, exactly. and pick your own A1C exactly. based on what Google says. Exactly, that, right. that's one thing we've learned today. That, that would be amazing. So I want to delve a little bit more into the nitty-gritties, these different drugs. So I think it's been a huge passion of yours and something that's really interesting. It seems that SGLT2s are a big passion of yours. That's another lecture another for 10 le hours. We're going to do, okay, we, got, we still have <laughs> about 30, 40 minutes left, so we can do it. We can do another yeah. 20 lectures, I think, in that time. Sure. Now. But I saw it in a paper in 2008. You mentioned its benefits in diabetes. That's nearly, you know, that's 17 years ago at this point. And now, of course, we know, or at least I remember from my internal medicine rotations, 
We even use SGLT2s on patients who have heart issues and yes. heart problems. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that inception in 2008, why this interest in SGLT2s come and how far they've come since then? Oh my gosh, like you had one of my passions here. I tried to be concise, <laughs> okay. I promise. So it's a funny story, I'll tell you. So in 2007, yes. I became interested in this class. So through my readings, of course. So I published that article in 2008. And in fact, at that time, not sure if you know this, there were no SGLT2 inhibitors on the market. I didn't None. know that. Wow. So the first one called Canagliflozin, it came out in 2013, five years before my article. So I wrote a review article. And at that time, people would read it. It's like, what is that? And med students, like, no one teaches that in med school. And fellows, no one knows about it. And the reason I got interested in it through my reading, not sure if you know this, but the story of this class goes back to 1835. So someone discovered in the bark of the apple tree a natural substance called a fluorizine. When they tried it on people at that time, they said that substance is a miracle. It does something really weird. So it made people pee sugar. <laughs> So when people ingest that natural substance, they would pee sugar, so their blood sugar improves and they lose weight at the same time. So people used it first as a diuretic. They're like, okay, it's good for people with heart condition, heart failure. And it took more than 100 years for people to start saying, let's develop a drug, which is like fluorizine. Maybe it would be helpful to people with diabetes. And the first drug came out in 2013. In fact, in Europe, they were one year before us because they don't have FDA, which takes time to review drugs. And they had the first drug in 2012. And then since then, more drugs came out in the class. We have four major ones now we use. So what these drugs do, they block a receptor in the kidneys in the proximal tubule of the kidney called SGLT2. So the SGLT2 in the kidneys, what it does it will take the sugar, which passes in the urine, and brings it back into the blood. So when you block it, you spill that sugar in the urine. So people pee sugar. That's how I explain to patients <laughs> to make it really easy. So when you get rid of sugar, your blood sugar comes down, the A1C comes down, and you lose weight because you're losing calories in the urine. So these drugs were approved. First, to treat people with type 2 diabetes. They were amazing. A1C came down. They lost weight. People were happy. Now, of course, same as any drug, there are always side effects. So when people excrete sugar in the urine, urine tract, in fact, bladder infections can happen, or genital fungal infections, and dehydration. If you don't drink enough fluids to compensate, like in the summertime when it's hot, you're sweating, you need to drink to compensate because you're going more to the bathroom. And some people complain they have to wake up a few times a night. Your body adapts, luckily, over time, and that will not be an issue at some point. But then studies done on these drugs, and I knew it from the beginning, that we're going to see more than just effect on the blood sugar and weight. Because when you get rid of fluid, you also get rid of salt. So I knew these drugs were going to be great for people with heart failure. And when you get rid of sugar and salt, that should also help the kidneys. I won't get into too many specifics science-wise, but there are other things they do. 
when it comes to endothelial function and how they act on certain cytokines in the body and so on. But in any case, more studies like were done. And now these drugs based on these studies are approved to treat patients who have heart failure with or without diabetes. You have someone with heart failure, not even a diabetic. Those are the mainstay drugs to treat those patients to prevent another episode of heart failure, to lower the rates of death, and to lower rates of hospital admission for these patients. They've also been shown to prevent heart failure. So even in people who don't have heart failure, but they are at risk, give them this drug, their rates of heart failure are much lower than someone else who is not taking them. Plus, also studies have shown, and now these drugs are approved based on those studies, yeah. that these drugs can improve your kidney function. So they are used now in people who have kidney disease, even without diabetes. They can even prevent your kidneys from getting worse over time. So if you use them early in the course, when the kidneys are still normal, you can prolong the life of the kidney. So that's why it's amazing class. And now if you look again at the ADA guidelines, they tell you it doesn't matter what that A1C is. If you have someone with heart failure or kidney disease, use these drugs to improve their heart function and their kidney function. Wow, wow. So you discovered, you, well, you highlighted this mechanism five years before it was made into a major drug, made into a major pharmaceutical. Now, I don't want you to, if you're, if you're under NDAs or exposure, please don't say those things or, or break the law or anything like that. But can you tell us about the next drug major method discovery you've had or if there's anything exciting in the future? Because that was a huge find in 2008, I think, a huge kind of thing to focus on because I think it's had an amazing impact on not only diabetes patients at this point, but heart failure patients. Right. Right. I mean, I remember my rotations and we would get a little gold star if we brought up, you know, this patient has diabetes and they also have heart issues. What about an SGLT2? And they'd be like, the attending would be like, great job, of course, because this new study and blah, 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 right. blah, blah. What excites you now? What new drug development, what new mechanisms are exciting to you in the world of diabetes or elsewhere? Yeah, so now what we're working on more is to improve technology. Yeah. As I said before, technology improved immensely. Like over time. Remember in my fellowship time uh, back in the late 90s, patients would complain when they have to do finger stick, those meters were really big, cumbersome, the needles to you know, prick your finger were really big and painful. And since then, major improvements. We have now continuous glucose sensors, the size of a dime you put on your shoulder, last 10, 14 days, you link it to your smartphone, you see your sugars all the time. And some of these sensors link now to the insulin pump and work as a closed-loop system. Mm. But despite all these improvements, there's still more to improve. So we're working on also better technology and ways we can also help patients remotely. I mean, yes, I can access everyone's sensor from me sitting in my office and the patient home, but we're trying to find more how we can do in real time to help patients so there are some apps we're working on where they can, they can alert us every time the patient could be in trouble. When someone has low blood sugar, sugar is spiking, and the patient maybe forgets to call us or doesn't tell us, 
we are alerted. The problem is, you know, because of staffing issues and time issue, we can't be connected to every patient 24 hours a day. So trying to find ways around it through more staffing, maybe have, you know, like certain, you know, people you hire dedicated to do this daytime and overnight. Mm -hmm. So from safety standpoint, that's great for patient because you have someone who's connected to them all the time and you can call the patient and say, you know what? I'm seeing your sugar dropped. What did you do? How did you treat it? Let's see if we can prevent it one more time. I see. So working on better technology and better connection with the patient. Yeah. So hopefully that will be coming in the future. No, that's cool. And since you've been practicing, since you started practicing as a physician, what do you think has been the greatest improvement in caring for patients with diabetes? Is it these monitors? Is it the new drugs like the SGLT2s, these Ozempic drugs? What is the thing that you think made the biggest impact on patients? So I see it as twofold. One is the medications we have. Yeah. And the two big advances, I think, were the GLP-1 receptor active, the injections, mm. the once a week, yeah. and the SGLT2 inhibitors. Wow. So these were great advancements, I think, in medicine to treat people with diabetes. The second one is the technology. So insulin pump and continuous glucose sensors. Wow, wow. And are there any myths about patients with diabetes? Any common misnomers? Any things you want to correct for the world right now? You know, I didn't think this it was more of a joke, but I, some people might think, you know, if you're just overweight to a certain degree, you're always going to get diabetes, but we've learned that's not necessarily right. true. Is there anything you want to correct or myths you want to correct about diabetes in general to the world? Yeah, there are a few things. Yeah. There are a few things. One, starting with type 1 versus type 2. Yeah. So if you go back to some older books yeah. 20 years ago, type 1 used to be called the juvenile onset and then type 2 adult onset. It's not the case. So now we say type 1 or type 2, why? And one of the misconceptions that type 1 always happens when you're a kid. Most of the time, yes, but you can have type 1 at any age. Yeah. So my oldest patient who got type 1 was 84 years old. Wow. Why? Because the immune system can stay quiet, even though with the genes you inherit, and that insult, which makes the immune system go crazy, may not happen till you're a certain age. Yeah. In the past, no one knew this. So these people are 84, you know, so my 84 many years ago, would be called type 2. And someone would mismanage her by treating her with a type 2 medication while she needed to be on insulin. Mm. Right? So now, the way we teach is type 1 can happen at any age. And again, when people get it at age above 35, it has a specific name. It's called LADA, latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult. It's same as type 1, but it's just another name we use. Type 2... It's not only adults, they are kids who have type 2 because of weight issues, right? When I talk to my colleagues, you know, pediatricians, they are kids, 10, 12, 14 years old, because of obesity, they have type 2 diabetes, mm. right? So type 2 is not always someone who's, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. So type 1 can happen at any age and type 2 can happen at any age. Second thing I see, sometimes people with type 1 and... I'm glad it happened because last week I see a patient with type 1 coming to see me for a third opinion. So she thought that through adjusting her diet, she can cure her type 1. I'm like, I wish. Because type 1 is the immune system 
destroying your pancreas. Nothing is going to change that immune system. Nothing we have now medication-wise, but diet is not going to change anything. Diet will affect people with type 2, so that's really important. Third thing, as you said, not everyone who's overweight, obese, is going to get type 2, right? But again, from health standpoint, when I see someone coming to see me for thyroid issues or any other issue, if I see they have you know, overweight obesity, we try to discuss weight and weight loss. Because again, you never know what's going to happen in 10, 20 years. So that person may not have type 2, but they may. But they might have other issues too, like sleep apnea or hypertension or high cholesterol or joint aches or just not feeling well in general. So you try to tackle the weight, but you're correct. Not all overweight people will have type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Fourth thing, sometimes people think exercise you know, means just doing stuff at home. You know, many people tell me, yeah, I don't go to the gym. I don't do brisk walking, but I always clean at home. I do. I'm like, yeah, that's good to be active, but that doesn't count as much when it comes to exercise. So you need to do brisk walking, not necessarily lifting weights and be on a treadmill, but at least go outside or anywhere and do brisk walking. You know, at least we recommend three hours a week you can split them any way you want. But doing work at home, cleaning, doing stuff doesn't, doesn't count really Real much. Exercise. Right. Yeah. And there's one thing I want you to t tell me if I'm wrong here, but I was looking at a report from the CDC in regards to prevalence of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And it seems for ages 0 to 19, the U.S. wins in regards to percentage of type 1 diabetes patients. Number one, is that true? And number two, do you have any idea why this could be? Yeah, it is. So because remember, in type 1, you inherit those specific yeah. genes I mentioned before. Yeah. And you need that insult to happen to start that immune-mediated destruction yeah. of the cells in the pancreas. So that's why there's more prevalence of type 1 at the younger age. I mean, that's why we used to call it juvenile. Yeah. Although now we know the insult may not happen till sometime later. Yeah. But one thing I did not mention before that Yes, it's the infection I mentioned, yeah. it's the stresses I mentioned. But one thing we're kind of discovering more and more, and there's lack of research in it, that perhaps things in the environment, like chemical agents, things we eat in food, could be behind also that immune system dysfunction. So, you know, when we eat food, even when it's supposed to be organic, may not be 100% organic, we don't know what chemicals we're eating, preservatives in food. Some people claim, I mean, there's no good science yet or good studies done on this, that those chemicals or preservatives might induce some immune system dysfunction, which could lead to different conditions over time. We also live in kind of, you know, a toxic world, honestly. I mean, you don't know what's around you when it comes to exposure to chemical agents, nuclear stuff. You know, so, some people claim without any evidence, I don't want people to, you know, yell at me because I'm saying this, but there were some studies done a long time ago, but they were shut down completely that maybe the cell phones we use have some effect on our body, how it functions, maybe the brain. Maybe it's like that little radiation coming from the phones over time can affect us 
I mean, there's not much data on this, you know, so that might explain again why in that young age we see more type 1 because it's immune-mediated and the immune system can be affected yeah. by anything from infection to stress around you. Yeah. Or maybe things we eat. I mean, kids, yeah. when they eat the junk food and things which have preservatives and, you know, chemicals, all this can affect the immune system yeah. and start that type 1 diabetes process. Yeah. And is the hypothesis, because this is the United States wins on this prevalence percentage, right. according to the CDC, is your hypothesis, and again, it doesn't have to be true, it should be just conjecture, that the, we are, people in the U.S. are exposed to more of this than any other place in the yes, world? Yes, exactly. Yes, I see. Yes, exactly. Okay. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. And again, that you know, comes to me because it just happened yeah. recently. So one of my patients, type 1, he's been my patient for a long time, and again, his diet is usually okay, not, you know, the best. Uh, he does well diabetes-wise, but always struggled with some weight issues. So he moved to Amsterdam a year ago. And luckily, through our televisits, I can do one anywhere in the world, right? We connect. He said after he moved to Amsterdam, within three months, was able to lose weight. He did not change his diet in terms of calories, mm -hmm but was able to lose weight, feel better. Uh, yes, he's biking probably more than what yeah. he did <laughs> here in the U.S. And then when he comes visit his family, he comes for like two weeks, he would gain five, 10 pounds, just feel not himself, goes back and feel better. I'm not saying we wow. should move to Amsterdam. Yeah. I love Amsterdam, yeah. <laughs> but I love also the U.S. I love yeah. my life here. But we believe that not just the type of food but things we eat in food, right? So I don't know if it's the chemicals, yeah. if it's preservative, if it's something around us affecting our weight. I mean, I see patients over and over who, again, may not have a bad diet, yeah. but they struggle to lose weight. People have sometimes all these vague complaints. We can't explain, yeah. no matter what testing we do, and we don't have the answer. And then anecdotally, you know, I hear people who travel to other places, and they're like, you know what? I just feel different. So a friend of mine, not really a patient of mine, who has inflammatory bowel disease, has a Crohn's disease, and he's been struggling with it, no matter what medication he's on. He goes visit his family in Dubai, stays for a month, and then he tells me, my symptoms just disappeared. Don't ask me how. Mm -hmm. Not a single symptom. Yeah. The first week I come back, my symptoms come back. Yeah. So I don't know honestly yeah. how to explain it. Uh, there's something maybe we're eating, we're doing. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. Hopefully we'll know the answer no, at some point. No, it's interesting. Yeah. It's definitely interesting, and it's something that I think needs to be delved into more. Because, I mean, and this is a really small random story. I may even cut it out. But I just came back from Italy. I was in Italy for six weeks. And what I noticed is the pasta there, when you eat the fresh-made pasta and stuff like that, I don't get any indigestion or, right. or anything like right. that. When I came back here the other night, I made like spaghetti with meatballs or something like that. And I noticed it almost instantly. I get this heartburn and stuff like that. I don't know how true right. any of this right. is, right? But I right. just know what anecdotally what right. I feel. It's interesting. It's an interesting Yeah, thing. it's a whole topic yeah, by itself. It's a, it could be another 7 yeah. million lectures exactly. that we could do. Exactly. Oh, we have only have about 20 minutes, so I want to delve a little bit more into life stuff. Life stuff. Because I think that's a, a large portion of people that are listening. So... If I'm an internal medicine resident or I'm a medical student, 
and I'm really interested in an endocrinology, but I'm not sure it's what I want to do. I might want to do gastroenterology, or I might want to do go into surgery or do something else. How should I figure out for myself that I want to do endocrinology or not? So the best way to yeah. know is to spend time with someone who does endocrine, yeah. right? So, Got it. so I would tell you, Zach, come spend two weeks with yeah. me. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to spend a month, yeah. you have different rotations. Yeah. But I would tell that person, come spend two weeks with me, see me in action. Yeah. See me talk to patients, managing patients. Yep. And then you see for yourself, either you like it or not. Yeah. And I've had people, you know, over the past 20 years who would say, yeah, I wasn't sure when I did my first endocrine inactive. I loved it. Some people say, I liked it, but I still want to do gastroenterology yeah. or cardiology or something else. Yeah. Right, so the best way to know is to see it live, interact with patients, yeah. and see how we do it on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Now, of course, what we do may be a little bit different than in a private practice, right? Because there's the teaching component, right? Or things could be a bit different because we have sometimes, you know, capacities other people don't have. Like I have in my office, you know, at least two diabetes educators who would see patients do teaching, we have access to all the technology, we have diabetes research center, right? But at least you see it, you know, for yourself and you see us in action and then decide, this is the best way to know. Yeah. Because you might read and like it maybe on paper, but once you're with that patient who has diabetes or any endocrine disorder, you may not feel the same connection or vibe. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other side of that question, say I know for sure, like you, say I'm like you, in my first year of medical school, 100 million percent, I want to be an endocrinologist. It's what I want to do. How do I become the most competitive applicant possible? If someone like you was looking at my application to go to your program or something like this, how would I make myself the most competitive med student, the most competitive internal medicine student to become an endocrinologist? First, when we look at all the applications, Right. Typically, applications all look good and decent. I don't look much myself at letters of I mean, recommendations. I'll tell you why. Because no letter is bad. All yeah. letters are good, right? I mean, people know whom to ask because they know that person likes them. That person going to write a nice letter. So letters don't really tell me much. They're all good. They all rave about the candidate. So I look at a few things in the application. Uh, one, I look at what that person does overall when it comes to endocrine. So if I have a resident applying right to endocrine, and then I see that all the posters or some publications they've done all are non-endocrine related. I'm like, why they have interest in endocrine suddenly? You know, what changed? Like their posters are on, you know, like heart disease. Everything is, you know, cardiology related, but then now they're applying to endocrine. So... I would like to know more from the candidate. What made you now interested in endocrine? Maybe something happened suddenly at that interest, like why there's nothing related to endocrine. Yes. That's one thing I look at. Scores are not that important. Why? First, I don't like to see someone fail on exam because it's important for us when we have someone, you know, as a fellow that they would pass the boards. It's not good for our, for our reputation that someone fails the board. It doesn't reflect good on us. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure we take people, you know, who pass their exams, but the scores themselves 
don't carry much weight. Why? Because at the time you do that test, you might have a headache. You may not do well. Some people are not very good test takers, right? But they are amazing physicians. They do amazingly well when they see patients. So that's what counts really more. So the score is not important, but I like to see that at least they passed every single test they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, third thing, the interview itself makes the biggest difference. So yes, the application is important. We try to select people, you know, have some endocrine stuff there, like one poster. They show some interest in endocrine. People who pass their test, scores are not important. References, I read them, but they don't carry much weight. They're all good. But it's the interview which tells me how good that candidate is. And in the interview, you can sense the passion, the motivation, right? I'll tell you a little story. So I'm not going to be too specific. So in case that person is watching or listening, they will not know. But in the past years, when we interview candidates, during COVID, we've done, I mean, tele, uh, you know, Zoom, because again, it was hard to get people to the office. So when we interviewed one of the candidates, at some point, you can see him or her getting sleepy sleeping during the interview. So I don't know the reason why. Maybe did not sleep well at night. Maybe it was moonlighting somewhere. So in my mind, what if that person really wanna you know, do endocrine, has really interest, will not be sleeping during the interview. So he was off my list. Yeah. There are things sometimes, you know, we look at during the interview. So if you're interviewing with me, Zach, and I tell you, in your like rotations in the past few months, does not have to be endocrine. Tell me about an interesting patient you saw. Yeah. If your answer is, hold on, I can't remember any patient. You're done. Yeah. Zach. You're done. <laughs> because there's always interesting patient yeah. you saw, interesting yeah. case you saw. Right? Could be just case of GI bleed. Yeah. I know you might like gastroenterology. Do, yeah. You see someone with GI bleed and how. You saw the patient, you did the testing, yeah. the scope, what you found, how. There's always something interesting. So when someone tells me, I can't remember anything interesting, that's someone who has no interest in anything. Yeah. So that person is done. Plus the connection sometimes you find when you interview someone, yeah. I think is really important. But I think the biggest one on the list, if you really want to work with me as a fellow yeah. on train, I would like to see you in action. So doing elective with me for two weeks to see how you interact with patients, yeah. how, you, how you present. I mean, that's better than interview for like half an hour, yeah. Yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. which may not really give me the whole story. But I think my biggest advice is that, you know, work hard to make sure you pass all your tasks. Yeah. The application looks yeah. decent. When I do a certain specialty, try to show there's some interest in the application. Mm-hmm. Try to work on a case report publication with one of the attendings on a poster. Again, could be just one thing, just to show that there was some interest right before and you show it. Plus, during the interview, just show your passion, your motivation, your hard work, be yourself, smile, like yourself, Zach. You'll be a perfect candidate. (laughs) Thank you. So, so (laughs) I'll be there tomorrow, no. (laughs) So I love when people show they have passion for something. Uh I don't want someone sleeping in the interview or not showing any interest. 
right? And showing respect yeah. also. We've had sometimes candidates who would ask certain inappropriate questions, like you wonder then if they fit in our big family. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So they are different no, that's great. things. But I think the biggest thing is to spend time with the department you yeah. want to join, just for them to get to know you. To see, you. to make sure. Exactly. I see. And I, I, th- I feel like this might be a similar kind of answer, but what makes, and this could be a four-part answer, or it could be all the same, what makes the best medical students, the best residents, the best fellows, and the best attending colleagues? Is there certain characteristics that unify them or differentiate Yeah, them? there are a few things. So yeah. one, is, one is passion again. Yeah. I love to see passion. Yeah. So I love to see it in a student, yeah. in a resident, yeah. in a fellow, and in my peers also. Yeah. So really passion for what you do. Second thing, I love to see hard work, right? So when someone rotates with me, if, you know, they come one day at 10, one day at noon, one day at 8, that's not really good, right? You need to be dedicated. So you're doing, like, a rotation to learn yes. about endocrine. Show up on time yeah. to see the first patient. Yeah. And when we see patients, we discuss different topics. I love when the student comes out the next day, Dr. Shabur, I looked up this topic, I found this. It makes me so happy yeah. because I'm not asking you to go look up something on your own. Mm-hmm. You went, you read about it. And it bothers me when sometimes a week later I ask the student or the resident or the fellow, did you read on this topic we discussed? They didn't have time. You can always find 10 minutes mm-hmm. of your time to go look it up. Mm-hmm. Third, also respect and decency, right? You may be the most amazing physician, yep. great with patients, knowledgeable, but then you're horrible to work with. Yes. You're not respectful to your colleagues. Uh, some people could be arrogant or nasty. That's what I don't like. So I like respect, decency, just a decent human being. And that makes a huge difference. Yeah. The part of that answer that I really, really, really love, it's not about your medical knowledge, it doesn't seem. It's not necessarily, I mean, of course, you need a basis of medical knowledge, but you want the passion, you want the interest, you want the excitement. It's not necessarily the person who can memorize everything from the book, right? You are correct, and I'll tell you why. Because if you had the best knowledge in the world, why do you have to train with me? So I don't expect people to know. Yeah. They are here to train. We are going to teach them, Yeah. right? Of course, you need the basic knowledge to be able to do the training, but then I'm here to teach you, train you, and make you read about the topics. I don't need to know if you know this or not, right? And second thing, now with the internet, right, and smartphones, you have access to anything, even in the exam room of the patient. You can go on any site, I won't mention specific sites, but look up, right, any topic you wish or you want. So yes, some knowledge is important, but you don't need to have the best knowledge. No, I'm there to teach you. And something you forget, you can always look it up. As long as you have a good judgment using your basic knowledge that and that good judgment is going to push you to go look up for things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't remember every single thing in endocrine. There's no way. There are things I myself sometimes go look up when I have to order some like gene mutation testing or look up something or some newer treatment or a dose of something we don't typically use all yeah. the time. I go look it up. It's normal. Luckily, we have access to it anytime we yeah. wish. But the AAA disease, you didn't need to look up. No. You had that in there. Exactly. You were ready. That was up in the brain, ready to go. Exactly. That's amazing. So as we cut, we're running out of time here. I just have a couple final questions. These are more sure. broad questions about just lifestyle. So do you have 
any advice for a successful, and that could mean many things, right, long-term career in medicine? Because it's not the easiest field in the world, right? We're going to put in long hours. We're going to put in lots of work. We're going to deal with sometimes sad things. Of course, sometimes amazingly happy things, but a lot of things. Do you have any advice for, you could even be directed at me because I'm starting residency in like a month. It's going right. it's, it's to be crazy. And this can be anything. This can be lifestyle. This can be finances. This can be relationships. This could be books to read. Anything you want. Right. So there are a few things. Yeah. Now, we know it's a long road, yeah. right? When people tell me I love medicine, I'm like, okay, let's sit and tell you how many years it's going to take you to get there. Yeah. And even when you get there, right, you still have to, you know, read and get yourself, you know, more knowledge about certain things. Medicine changing really quickly. And that's in every single field. Just a long road. And we put in a lot, lot of hours, as you said. Not only when we see patients during the day, you go home, you have to always log in into electronic medical records, read about things, prepare, uh, you know, a certain topic to present. So it's lots of work. So what makes it successful and sustainable over time is to have a balance in life. So try to find things to make you happy and relaxed. Not always work. So that could be the gym for me, could be going to the movies, could be meeting with friends, could be anything you enjoy. Could be music, could be reading a book, which is not always medicine. You need to find the time to disconnect, right? And that's really important for your own mental and physical health. Plus, you need a good support system. Right? There's nothing better than having someone to talk to. Could be your significant other, could be a friend, could be a family member. You can get home at night, tell them about your day. Sometimes it's nice to vent, even when it's a good thing. You can say, oh my gosh, I had an amazing day and talk about it. That's good for your mental health. So having people you can connect with and people who can listen to you is really important because that support system is going to help you sustain that life over time. But I think what's important is to find something which can make you disconnect and make you happy. So keeping that balance in life yeah. is absolutely important. Because I see people who get into that burnout over time because they work nonstop, they have no time for friends, for anything outside their work, and you end up burning out. And then what are you doing? Not only you're hurting yourself, but you will not take good care of your patients. Mm -hmm. If you could go back in time and speak to Dr. Jabor or Serge at 18 years old, what would you say? Would you say anything in particular? In fact, I would not change anything. Nothing. I would not change wow. anything. Sometimes I go back, you know, in my mind in time and say, would I have done something different? And the answer is no. And I think what I've done, you know, sometimes people need to have guts to do it in life. You know, life could be an adventure. Remember... You know, I finished med school, you know, I was in my like early 20s and I said to myself, you know what, I think I want to go to the U.S. You know, so I left my country, you know, I flew across the Atlantic Ocean, came to the U.S., left my family, friends, everyone to start a new life, you know, career. I needed guts to do it. I never thought I would have these, you know, guts and, you know, do this, but I did it. And I'm lucky I did because that changed my whole life. And, you know, I love living here. I love being American. Mm -hmm. I'm still Lebanese. Yeah. I go back to Lebanon uh, to see my family. But sometimes in life, you need to make big decisions. 
And, you know, if you think that's going to help you, just go for it. Sometimes it's a gamble. It may work. It may not work. But the most important thing is to have that support system. And I had that support system from my family in France. So my family supported me uh, making that long trip and changing my life. You know, suddenly uh, my friends supported me. And even at that time when I came here, there were no smartphones, even cell phones. Yeah. You know, you had to use these like old phones to call, you know, and I would still connect you know, with my friends. And it was tough initially, yeah. but through that support system I had, yeah. I was able to build my life and career here. Yeah. So again, it's important to have those special people in your yes. life who can support you like all the way yeah. and have that balance yeah. in life, which is extremely important. How did you come to that decision? Because I think there's a bunch of people, you know, international medical graduates and tons of people who are debating, you know, do I want to become a doctor and practice in my home country or come to the U.S. and practice? How did you decide to come to the U.S. to do this? I'll tell you how, because I was in French med school, as yeah. I said before. And even in French med school, the reference books were all American. Mm -hmm. So, and because I always wanted the best for myself, I'm like... I need to be in the U.S. This is where, like, the books come from. Yeah. This is where the studies come from. The guidelines come from. So that's why I decided, you know what? It's time, you know, to get here and to start my new life and career. Yeah, yeah. And well, we're really running out of time here, so I'll ask two final questions. How did you get comfortable here? How did you kind of adapt? And Because it's huge. I can only imagine the culture shock. Not only the language, but it's a different way of life here than I'm sure it is when you, where you came. Even in France, I think things are insanely different. How did you come here and adapt and kind of be comfortable living in America? Well, it was very difficult initially, yeah. obviously. I remember I came here like last week of June yeah. in 1994. And then I started... My internship, yeah. July 1st. Wow. Luckily, I knew a friend from med school yeah. who was two years older than me, who was in South Jersey at yeah. the time. So I stayed with him. And then I find an apartment and live you know, on my own. And it was very difficult. He was the only person you know, I knew. Uh, so it was really difficult for me. But you adjust over time. Yeah. You make friends, uh, people you know, start to like you and help you. And it takes time to readjust to a new life. Uh, so it took me, I would say, six months to a year to make that big adjustment, wow. but I was able to do it, luckily. Um, so it's not always easy, but with a support system you have, you can make it yeah. happen. Final question here, very easy question. Just any closing words in general? This could be towards people interested in endocrinology, people looking to leave Lebanon and come practice medicine in America, or people just interested and in, are starting to go into the field of healthcare in general. It could be about anything at all. So what I would say is always believe in yourself. Yeah. So that's where it starts. Yeah. Right? So uh, no matter what you decide to do, always believe in yourself. Don't always say... That's impossible to achieve. That's impossible to happen. I'm not going to even try. I'm like, no, believe in yourself. Because when you have belief and passion and willpower and dedication and also motivation, you can move mountains. Yeah. So believe in yourself. And then once you decide what to do, 
Just make sure you have the right support system to make it happen. You need to talk to friends, family members, make sure that's the right decision, get their support in case things don't go that well. But I would say to everyone and to you, Zach, consider doing endocrine. (laughs) This is the most amazing field. I love it. It's my passion. And, you know, I think when people spend some time with us, they love this field. But again, you know, if I have to give an advice to someone on how to even believe in themselves, I mean, there's nice book, in fact, I read a few years ago, which was not, in fact, uh, available to me at the time I came here. It was published years ago. Like it's called Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> not sure if you read that no, book. No, no, no. But that book applies to, to anyone who would do anything in life. It shows you how you can believe in yourself, how you can overcome barriers, how you can make things work, no matter how tough things are, and how you can make things work with the support system you have. Yeah. And that applies to any field, could be medical or anything. It's really amazing book, which I recommend to everyone. Uh, but again, the most important thing is to believe in yourself. You can move mountains if you want to. Wow. Dr. Jabor, this has been an amazing, an amazing podcast. Thank you so much for coming. It's my pleasure, Zach. I love talking to you. I wish we had 10 more hours to <laughs> We're go. We're going to start another 100 lectures after this for the <laughs> 10 more hours. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. That was amazing. That was so good. I loved it. You're You're awesome.